Good morning. Today's passage is Matthew 14, starting at the 13th verse. In your Pew Bibles, it is on page 820. It is a familiar passage to most, I would assume. Uh, And so as you listen to me read it, uh, pray for the grace to hear it afresh. It's so easy to listen to familiar passages of scripture and to just uh, assume that we know what they mean and what the Lord has for us in them. Uh, But we believe that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, And so let's pray uh, as we hear this read that we receive it that way. Again, Matthew 14, beginning at the 13th verse. This is God's word. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Over, And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Your word is perfect in every respect. It is inspired by your Holy Spirit and you have have watched over its transmission over the years, Lord, so that the word that we have today is exactly the word that you want us to have. And so, Father, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts through the work of your spirit today. Lord, as I preach, I pray that you would guard the words of my mouth, that I would only speak your words after you, and that your people would be built up as a result. All this we ask for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the account of the feeding of the 5,000 is among the well-known of Jesus' miracles. You may not know that it is the only of Jesus' miracles to be recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all likelihood, it's the miracle witnessed by the single largest number of people. As Matthew tells us in verse 21, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. In other words, Matthew says that the number 5,000 is an approximate number only of the adult men in the crowd, but that there were women and children there as well. 
Some commentators believe that the actual number of people fed through this miracle was between 10 and 20,000, accounting for, among other things, families with multiple children who were present. The miraculous feeding of the crowd was also repeated in a second, very similar situation at some point later in Jesus' ministry. It's often known as the feeding of the 4,000. Both Matthew and Mark record that this second event, Jesus, in like fashion, blessed a very small amount of loaves and fish, and there was a miraculous multiplication of the food enough to feed the entire crowd. And of course, the actual number of those fed in the second miracle was higher than 4,000 because Matthew tells us that the number 4,000, again, only included the adult men, not the women and children. Besides that, Jesus references the miraculous feeding of the crowd twice in the Gospels. He mentions it as an object lesson for his disciples when teaching them later on, as recorded in Mark 8. And he uses it as a rebuke to the crowd wanting more bread in John chapter 6. So for the miracle given the most visibility in the Gospels, what are we to make of the miraculous feeding of the crowd in Matthew 14? What did it mean to the crowd back in that time? What did it mean to the disciples in its original historical context? context rather, And what does it mean for us today? There's certainly several ways to examine this miracle. But what I'd like to do today is to focus on what Jesus says in verse 16 in a very particular way from the perspective of the disciples. In verse 16, Jesus tells the disciples with reference to the hungry crowd, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And so our deep dive into this miracle today will focus around just four words. You give them something. You give them something. The first point, you. So Jesus' disciples come to him in verse 15 and say, this is a desolate place, Jesus, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. I would assume that the disciples never anticipated that this crowd would have materialized in the first place. We read in verse 13 that when Jesus heard that Herod the Tetrarch had killed his cousin John, meaning Jesus' cousin John, John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew by himself, presumably from Nazareth because that's the last location marker that we have for Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And he went by boat to a desolate place by himself, likely taking his disciples with him. We can only speculate why Jesus would have withdrawn. He might certainly have been grieving John's death He might have been anticipating his own passion and death, which would be coming in the near future. He might have needed time to process with his father all of the events that had happened and all the events that were to come, or any combination of all of the above. deeds of healing and teaching from all around the region found out where he was and came out from the surrounding towns to find him. We get the sense from verse 14 that it was out of Jesus' love 
and compassion for the needs of the crowd that he chose to serve them instead of being quiet and alone with his disciples. So we really can't blame Jesus' disciples for the question, why don't you just send these people away? Why don't you just do what you came here to do, rest and be alone? But Jesus turns the table on them, as he often does. He says instead, no, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. So I can't really imagine what the disciples would have been thinking at this point. There's no no rational solution to this problem from a human perspective, certainly not from a first century AD human perspective. The amount of food the disciples had wasn't even sufficient for them. It's just five small loaves. It wasn't even a 22 ounce loaf of Stroman bread. It was a, a, just a small loaf of barley bread and two small fish. It wasn't enough for them, let alone for the entire crowd. And there were, were no other viable alternatives. In the other gospels, accounts of this event, the disciples ask, even if we had enough money, Jesus, to go out and buy food for all these people, there isn't enough food around here to buy. There's no DoorDash, there are no supermarkets, there's no Amazon or Walmart drone deliveries. This is a case where the supply chain broke down and demand simply far exceeded supply. And yet Jesus tells the disciples in verse 18, you bring what you have to me. So again, I can only guess that the disciples had no clue how Jesus was going to pull this one off, but they didn't need to. All they needed to do was to be faithful to the call of the Lord and to bring to him what they had. And he was the one who made it enough. And really, he made it more than enough since in verse 20 we read that there were 12 baskets of pieces left over because all of the food distributed to the crowd was simply more than they could consume. In John's account of what happened at this event, we read that Jesus actually knew what he was going to do in advance. That he asked the disciples, uh, where are we going to find food for these people? Because he wanted to show them in a particular way, not only his glory, but as I will get to in a moment, something, something else. So why did Jesus even ask the disciples to be a part of this process? Why did he say, you give them something? In other circumstances where food was needed, the Lord simply provided miraculous provision of that food and gave the people themselves the responsibility of gathering it up. Think about the the miraculous provision of manna and quail in the wilderness as reported in Exodus and Numbers. The Lord provided manna for his people for 40 years. Every day they would wake up, it would be on the ground, they would go out and gather it. On the day before the Sabbath, they would go out and gather two days worth of manna. There was just enough for what they needed. It was provided for them every day. The quail, when the Lord brought it in, was blown in on winds from the sea. And all the people had to do was literally walk up to their doorstep, pick up their quail, like their Costco rotisserie chicken and enjoy it. God provided the food directly 
to his people in those situations. But here, Jesus specifically instructs the disciples to do something else. He adds, he adds a, a task for them. He asks them to bring him the very little that they have. He multiplies it, and then he gives it to the, uh, back to the disciples, rather, to distribute to the people. And I think that there's something else that the Lord wants us to see here other than the fact that people are getting fed. I think, I think it's this. I think that Jesus is ultimately talking about more than food. Jesus' statement to the disciples, you give them something, is multivalent. It has many different applications, many different meanings. It certainly pertained uh, to the situation at hand, to the feeding of the crowd on that day in a, in a very specific way. But in Mark 8 and in John 6, Jesus himself makes it clear that the miraculous provision of bread to the crowd was about something more than physical food. Jesus says in John 6, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's John 6, verses 27 and 35. Look, here's how all of this comes together. Jesus is the bread of life. But the way in which he generally and typically nourishes and satisfies the spiritual hunger of our souls is that we in the church share Jesus, we serve Jesus with one another. Many have expressed this concept in various ways. We're just beggars leading other beggars to where the food is is a sentiment used by many. I'm not sure who originated it, but I first heard it from Dr. Jack Miller, a pastor from Philadelphia. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that an integral part of discipleship and spiritual formation is brotherly and sisterly admonition from other members of the church. Teach and admonish one another, he quotes from Colossians 3.16. And the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What all these people have said in their various ways is that those who profess that the atonement of Jesus Christ has washed away their sin guilt and has made them clean, they need one another in order to grow in faith, to grow in grace, and to continue, continually walk in repentance. If we lack this kind of brotherly and sisterly care, we will, as the writer of Hebrews says, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We'll believe the lie that our hope is not found in Christ alone, that our true identity is not being found in Christ, but what we make ourselves to be. And so it seems as though God tells us through his word that we are the ones ordinarily responsible for facilitating the spiritual growth of others in the church. We are the disciples to whom Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. We are the ones who take 
our faith and our experience and share it with one another in order that we would be mutually built up. Jesus' words to his disciples in that desolate place 2,000 years ago are his words to us today. You, we, give them something. But what is it to give others that kind of help? That leads us to our second point, give them. What the Father gave us was his son Jesus and what Jesus gave is his very life. He died in order that we would have life. And he gave us his spirit in order that we would be continually nourished with the bread of life, in order that we would grow and mature in faith. And so following in the same vein, what Jesus calls us to give each other in the church is ourselves. Back in today's passage, what Jesus ordered the crowd to do in verse 19 wasn't really to sit down, to be seated on the grass, as the ESV renders it. It's just not a great translation. The verb translated to sit down there is the Greek verb anakino, anakino, sorry, which is a very specific type of sitting down. It's actually reclining on floor cushions, or in this case on the ground, to eat a meal. That's the way most people in Jesus' day would have eaten meals together, reclining on one elbow with heads angled toward the table and feet angled away. And so many portrayals of what it looked like to eat a meal together in the ancient Near East in Jesus' time, such as Da Vinci's Last Supper, just have it wrong. Jesus and his disciples would not have been sitting upright in chairs at a rectangular table 30 inches off the floor. They would have been reclining on the floor, kind of nestled together in a round pattern, eating with one hand off of a table about a foot off the floor. But that's not my point. My point is to recline with someone at the table, just imagine the picture of what it looks like to do that, and to share a meal with them was a very special act. It was an act that communicated intimacy. It was an act that communicated welcome and acceptance and inclusion. For Jesus to have commanded the people at this meal to recline at table with him would have been a command of a, of a peculiar intimacy. You're a friend, you're an equal, you're accepted. It brings to mind other pictures from scripture of what it looks like to do this. I think of Psalm 23, where the Lord says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. That's exactly what's happening here in Matthew chapter 14. I think also of the image of the marriage feast, of Jesus and the bride, his church, where we're all gathered together around a table in a very intimate, very close, uh, very joyful meal. And that's what we are invited to do with one another today. We're invited to give our own selves to one another in a very deep, intimate kind of way. And while we often limit this invitation to showing hospitality to one another, I think that the invitation goes far deeper than that. 
We're called to invest ourselves in one another. We're called to pursue one another. We're called to get involved in one another's messiness. Ultimately, we're called to live sacrificially for each other in the church, to love one another sincerely from a pure heart, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1.22. Now what that looks like will vary from relationship to relationship and from season to season, but in general, I think that serving one another and building one another up in the church includes this. It includes proclaiming the gospel to one another, not only in formal Bible studies, but also in very down-to-earth, very practical situations in life. It means talking with people who are experiencing the everyday joys, the everyday challenges, the everyday hardships, the everyday questions and doubts and fears that they face in life, and asking them, what difference does it make that Jesus died and rose from the dead to make you his own? How does the work of Jesus applied to your life help you in this situation? And how can I help you to experience the love of God through Jesus in this situation? It looks like pursuing one another lovingly in the church so that everyone knows that he or she is seen and heard and loved. And that means intentionally being curious about other people and asking questions that go beneath the surface. It means asking questions that aren't limited to children and the weather and how work is going and dealing with the uh, busyness that we all experience in life. It means really caring for one another. It means knowing other people and being known enough that we're actually able to find ways through the help of the Spirit to apply the Word of God to one another's lives. It means humbly opening up our own homes and more importantly, our own lives to let other people in so that they would not only see our best selves, but the doubts, the fears, the idols, and the sin that need to be brought into the light. A pastor in our denomination, Tim Keller, who passed away last year would often say, when when you do this, you don't just bring people into the public parts of your house Uh, that are nice and clean and taken care of, you actually let them look into the spare bedroom where you've dumped everything that was in the public areas of the house before they showed up. It means holding one another accountable so that we serve as checks and balances on each other, doing everything that we can so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. Our former senior minister, James Boyce, put it this way in his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith. He offered seven ways in which the commands of Scripture inform us about what our relationship to others should be like in the church. He said, we are to love one another. We are to serve one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We're to forgive one another. We're to confess our sins to one another. We're to instruct one another.
to one another's lives because it flows out of not what we ought to do, but who we are. It's who we are as image bearers of God. It's who we are as people who have been redeemed and washed clean and are being progressively transformed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit. Dr. Edmund Clowney, a pastor and theologian of the last century said this, he said, man is made not simply in the image of God as though the divine image were reproduced in man, but rather man is made as the image of God. He is like God. God, and that's what it means to give one another something. We share the image of God in its fullness that is inside of us by the work of God's creative will and through the work of his redeeming will, and we help other people to experience in in their lives as well. And friends, 10th Church is at a point in its history that I don't know that we've been at in at least my lifetime. We are at a point where we need to ask ourselves, what are we as a church? Are we as a church a place simply known by its reputation and by its history? Not that those things are bad. They are gifts given to us by God. But how are we going to steward that reputation and that history? Are we going to love one another well? Are we going to build one another up in faith? Is 10th Church going forward going to be known as a place where people grow spiritually in their love for the Lord and in their love for one another and in their love for the world around 10th Church? This is the invitation that is given to us today, even in this passage. You give them something but what are we to give? And that brings us to our final point, something. Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and physicist and philosopher wrote this a little less than 400 years ago. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. And what he says, essentially is that we're all looking to be satisfied by something. Other, other people have said we all have a God-shaped hole in our heart. So we're looking to be satisfied and verse 20 in this morning's passage says that all the people in that crowd 2,000 years ago ate and were satisfied. Satisfied by what? Well, in the original context, they were satisfied by the bread and the fish that Jesus provided through the disciples. But in our context today, we are invited to be satisfied through something else other than full bellies. And that's what Jesus tells us in his later commentary that this miraculous multiplication of food points to that we are ultimately satisfied through the very presence of God through our intentional love for one another. The disciples served the people and the bread that Jesus provided. And today, we're invited to serve the presence and the love of Jesus to one another through our love and mutual care. Do you have that kind of care right now in your own life? Do you have friends whom you know and who know you? 
friends who are excited to share the presence of God with you through living life together so that you would be shaped into someone who thinks and acts and trusts and loves more like Jesus? And are you willing to be that kind of friend? Well, if you don't, I know enough of you to know that you're not alone. Loneliness, especially spiritual loneliness in the church, is a serious epidemic. But again, the Lord invites us to something different here. And so if that is not your experience, if you don't have those kinds of relationships, don't throw up your hands and say, this is too hard. I've tried. People don't respond. People don't see me. They don't love me the way that I want to be loved. Here are some things that you can do. Ask the Lord through prayer to show you how to love others that way, how to love others sacrificially, how to be someone who seeks other people out and gets to know them. And pray that you would know how to find others in this church who will love you by feeding you with the very bread of heaven, with the very words of Christ applied to your heart in the very specific ways in which you need that. Get connected with a small group. We have dozens of small groups connected with this church and that's the most natural way for these relationships to develop. If you don't know where to find a small group, you can find them on our website. You can talk to someone at the welcome table in the narthex. You can talk to me or any one of the other elders or deacons. Pursue someone after the service today and offer to be that kind of friend to them. Just turn around and look for people around you today whom you don't know. Talk to them, engage them, get to know them. Especially look for someone who is alone or who looks lonely. And pray for the entire church, the 10th would be increasingly a place where God's people are fed where God's people are satisfied and grow together in love as we offer one another the very person of Christ. The Spirit paints the story of God's love on the canvases of our relationships with one another. You give each other something. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, What we're asking is difficult, not for you, but for us, because we confess in our own sinful lives and sinful hearts that we want the security and safety of being isolated. But Lord, you call us out of that into the beauty of community and being known and knowing one another. And so, Lord, I pray for every person in this room and listening to us online that you would make us people who serve one another the very bread of life. Lord, show us how to do that by loving each other well. Show us how to open our lives that we would welcome that kind of intrusive but good love, necessary love, and that we would be formed by it into people who look 
and think and act and love more and more like your son, Jesus. All this we ask in his name. Amen.